0: Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Now, today we have the second half of the Hawaii Pacific Health 2018 Summer Student Research Program, and we have seven research scholars who are going to tell us today about some of the great, exciting things they've been learning over the summer and how this research can affect every one of us in our daily lives. So we're going to get right to it. Our first research scholar we're going to talk to is Lauren Moraoka. Lauren, where'd you go to school and what
1: are you doing now and what you studying? Uh, so for high school, I graduated Hanolani Schools, and I'm going to be a senior at UH Manoa. Fantastic. Uh, What's your major? Uh, molecular cell biology.
0: Molecular cell <laughs> biology. Now, how is that different than like regular
1: biology? I actually changed my major so I wouldn't have to hike for a lab. <laughs> I think it's a little bit easier than regular biology. Oh, I'd be so
0: into that. <laughs> you ha- you would have to hike for a lab? Mm-hmm. Like hike really collecting,
1: far? Collecting specimen on Wa'ahila Bridge. So, you'd have right, to hike Null. up
0: to a ridge? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a molecular cell biologist. Amen. Because <laughs> I do not want to hike up to a ridge. Isn't it dangerous?
1: Mm, I don't know. I just. Well, you said I'm me, out not of for that. Me. All right. <laughs> I totally
0: understand. Okay. So, what are, who are you working with and what you studying?
1: Uh, so, I'm working with Dr. Edward Fong and Dr. Brian Wu, who are pulmonologists at Kapiolani. And we're looking at um, how a standardized asthma pathway affects how long patients stay in the hospital, basically.
0: So if we have a whole bunch of different doctors doing all different sorts of things and it's not standardized, maybe there's variation in how long people are in the hospital. Exactly. But if everybody followed a standard protocol, so that does that mean that everybody has to agree?
1: Um, well, we're kind of looking at that right now because implementation was in 2017. So we're kind of looking at how many people actually use the pathway and what that means for the patient outcomes and things like that.
0: So the idea is that if everybody was on a standardized path, maybe we would potentially be able to predict a little bit more about the duration of their hospital Mm -hmm. stay. But if everybody kind of does things differently, we can't be certain how that's going to impact the duration of hospitalization for care. Mm And that actually is kind of interesting because there's a lot of what we call clinical protocols or pathways in medicine where we try and establish an agreement amongst a variety of people of a certain specialty to say, Hey, let's all do it this way. What do you think? There are some guidelines that are put out by national organizations, but not everybody fits into that particular mold or into that particular path. So there's always got to be a little bit of flexibility for some individual type treatment, but certainly everybody should get at least a basic level of treatment. And all the different elements provided in that. So, when you look at the implementation from last year, do you think that we need to implement it more? From what you're seeing,
1: um, from what we actually haven't gotten all of our data back yet and analyzed. But from what I've seen and talked to to actual clinicians, they say they feel a little more comfortable doing the diagnoses and things like that when there's a standardized way to take care of your patients. And it
0: actually does make things a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. You know, some of the things that we've looked at over the years is appropriateness of certain types of inhalers, for example. You know, if you have asthma, you should use a rescue inhaler. But if you use it more than twice a week, you might need a a basic kind of steroid inhaler. And if you use that more, you might need to do add-on therapy. So we are learning a lot about how to approach medicine in a systematized fashion so that everybody gets at least a basic level of care. And then if you have particular needs for certain things like, steroids or leukotriene inhibitors or whatever the case may be for asthma, that we can still individualize that approach. So certainly a well-designed way that we can look at a protocol. And and I appreciate the fact that you're really just getting in there and saying, hey, are they following it? That's a lot of research with medical records. If anyone ever has insomnia, <laughs> read your medical record. Because that'll put you to sleep after a few pages. I'll tell you, there's a lot of stuff in there. All right. Well, thanks for doing that. And uh, we'll hear some more about what you find out. And hopefully, everybody who has asthma, who has a need to be hospitalized, will get great care when they need it. And it'll work out fantastic. That's sort of the goal is get everybody to breathe better and not have a problem. All right. Our next researcher scholar here today is Ryan Ogasawara. Ryan, where'd you go to school? What you doing?
2: Hello. So I went to Punahou School, and now I'm going to be a junior at Yale, and I'm uh, majoring in molecular biology.
0: Another molecular biology, but you don't have to hike up a ridge to do specimens. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good. I don't know if there's ridges in in Connecticut. I'm not so certain.
2: I think there's a few, but... I don't want to hike them.
0: I don't want to hike them either, but I shouldn't say that because hiking is a very good exercise and activity. And under safe circumstances, it can be fabulous. Personally, I'm a klutz and I don't want to like fall off a ridge. That would be my luck. Finally get athletic enough to hike somewhere and hurt myself. All right, Ryan. So who are you working with and what you studying? Uh,
2: I'm working with Dr. Musgrave on the nature of infections preceding the onset of acute post streptococcal glomerulonephritis.
0: All right, so tell me, what is acute post glomerular nephritis?
2: Basically, it's a disease that occurs after someone gets a streptococcal infection, and it's characterized by blood and protein in the urine and uh, facial edema.
0: So bad stuff are these people who get strep infections that are treated or that are untreated, or it doesn't matter, could be either.
2: It could be either, and usually it goes, um, you get you get a streptococcal infection, and then uh, usually it gets better on its own. And then after that, a week or two, then you get a
0: PSGN. So you could get this strep infection. A lot of people now these days are saying, don't use a lot of antibiotics. We use too many of those. Be careful with that. So a lot of parents are just following those guidelines and saying, okay, you know, Johnny has a sore throat. Let's not get him on a whole bunch of antibiotics. And in some cases, that could result in the potential that they might have. Or even if they don't, they do get antibiotics, they could still get this condition in their kidneys, glomerular nephritis, where they have protein in their urine. Now... That's something that most people wouldn't necessarily identify when they look at urine is, oh, there's protein in there. But, you know, in the clinical terms, it generally makes it kind of frothy, Mm -hmm. kind of bubbly. And then they also, I guess, you might notice the facial edema or the swelling of the face. And so there are particular factors. Are you seeing any? What are some of the factors you're studying? What are some of the things that could could make the chances higher that someone would get this?
2: We're actually looking because Hawaii actually has a higher incidence of APSGN than across the nation. and We're, we're looking a hotbed <laughs> of <laughs> yes. acute
0: post-streptococcal streptocopo- glomerular nephritis. Okay. Mm-hmm.
2: So we're looking at the uh, types of infections and the location of the infection and trying to see what exactly the difference is and why we have so much.
0: I wonder if it might have something to do with our ethnic population being so varied and being such a melting pot in a good way that potentially we see different cultural aspects of care that we might not in other populations in the mainland.
2: Yes, uh, anecdotally and in some preliminary studies, there have been some connections between ethnic, uh, the uh, ethnic uh, diversity, and APSGN.
0: All right. Well, that's that's certainly something that we will hopefully be able to study more, figure out how to avoid getting, and also figure out what to do for the kids who do get it and help protect their kidneys. All right, so thanks for doing that study and for working on that. Next, we have Lauren Mooney. Lauren, what you doing,
3: and where? what are you studying right now? Where are you at? Hi, so I went to Punahou as well, and now I'm going to be a junior at USC, and I'm studying human biology. Human biology, so that's different than molecular cell biology. Yep. I don't know how.
0: Because I didn't want to do molecular cell biology. Okay, <laughs> that's a good reason. She didn't want to hike. <laughs> and you don't want to hike either. And you just want to not have to deal with molecular stuff. Exactly. So you're dealing with human body biology. Yep. Okay. And so what's your favorite part of bio? Um, the physiology part. Physiology. One of our guests last week was studying bio-physi- biophysics. Okay, it was something the word physics, which just scares me in general. But yeah, I think it's really interesting that we're having all these particular subsets. I know when I was in college many years ago, probably before you were all born, which is sad for me. You know, biology was biology. It was either biology or maybe molecular biology, and that was it. There weren't any other variations. But now we're really learning a lot about different things and getting down into the nitty-gritty details of the way that different biosystems operate and how
3: they interact and what we can learn about it. Good. Okay, so what are you learning this summer? So I'm working with Dr. Shilpa Patel, Dr. Melinda Ashton, and Ms. Amy Onaka, and we're researching how we can use automated blood counts instead of manual ones to help us better diagnose infection and inflammation. Okay, so I see
0: something down here called immature granulocytes, and what happened is that started showing up on a lab report and freaking me out because I didn't know why it was showing up. And then I'd have to look and i go, oh, there aren't any. Oh, okay, so I shouldn't worry about it. But
3: when it first showed up, I thought, oh, no, there's immature granulocytes. So what are immature granulocytes? So immature granulocytes are basically just immature cells, and usually the presence of them means the bone marrow is acting up. So that means that there's something going on in your body that your bone marrow is trying to protect you from. And that's not something you generally want to see in a blood test,
0: which is why I was freaking out. And so it's actually reported out on some of the diagnostic and clinical lab reports that we get in our office when we do uh, different testing for patients. And so when we see that, you know, if there is a high level of that, is it always something serious? Could it just be like an
3: infection and your body's building more more white blood cells? Or is it always like, uh uh-oh? There are certain conditions where it's normal to have elevated counts, I think, in newborn babies and I think in cancer patients. That's pretty common. Um, Sometimes also the machine or the person doing the test uh, makes a mistake, and that could often lead to some high reported levels.
0: All right. So if you're out there looking at your electronic medical record and you see immature granulocytes, do not freak out. It could be fine. Just talk to your doctor. It might need to be repeated doesn't mean you're a newborn baby, because if you are, you're not looking things up on the internet. (laughs) It does not mean you have cancer. Just check with your doc, because it might be reported, and sometimes it'll say normal level of zero, and you're like, oh, no, what's that? (laughs) All right. Nothing to worry about. Okay. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with some summer student research scholars, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about some more exciting projects that are going on right now. Why don't you stay with us?
4: Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Wealth Jar, Hawaii Pacific University, and Locations.
0: Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak with the Hawaii Pacific Health 2018 Summer Student Research Program Research Scholars, and we are going to hear about some more exciting projects going on. These are research studies that are being done right now here in Hawaii. So for those folks who wonder, are we really keeping up with what's going on in the mainland? Do we really have a good handle on what the latest and greatest is in medicine? The answer is yes. After hearing from some of these students, we really are in the process of finding actually revolutionizing how things are treated in hospital settings, in clinic settings, in emergency rooms, in short-term rehabs. We're really trying to figure out how we can take the best care of the people here in the islands and do so in a way that will help them to be able to get better and enjoy more healthy years of their lives. Now, speaking of health, we have
3: Lindsay Hodell. Lindsay, where are you from? What you studying? So I went to Punahou, and I'm going to be a senior at Dartmouth College this year, And I'm studying computer science and digital arts.
0: Interesting. Computer science and digital arts. Yeah. So art that is done on the computer.
3: Mm Mm-hmm. So I've taken modeling on the computer and then animation. So you know how to do it in a computerized way.
0: I can't even do it with a regular pen. I mean, stick figures, horrible handwriting, welcome to my world. So you're learning how to do it in advanced computer science technology. Yes. fantastic. All right. So that sounds like something way above my head. I'll 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 learn physics before I'll learn computer digital art. I, I can't do regular art, but
3: tell me what you're studying. What you're doing this summer? So I'm working with Dr. Charles Kim, who's a urologist, and Dr. Owen Chan, a pathologist, and we're we're looking at the accuracy of MRIs in detecting prostate cancer. So the way that prostate cancer is usually diagnosed doesn't always include an MRI. Right. So when
0: we do prostate biopsies, sometimes you can do your best at trying to do this biopsy, and you might not hit the area of concern. So MRI MRIs supposed to help us be a little bit more accurate
3: with that particular biopsy? That's the hope. So it could either help us with diagnosing prostate cancer or even treating, can- di- treating prostate cancer, because then you could do focal treatments. And that's really the key, is trying to individualize
0: the treatment, because it's not all prostate cancer is the same. Some of it is more advanced than others. And also, you know, we had this idea of, if you get diagnosed, should you do something or should you be under active surveillance, which is this particular term used to describe People diagnosed with having a problem in their prostate—not necessarily cancer—but boy, did they get a piece of tissue at the right location. And so, if you can do something like this particular technology, the MRI, then you might be able to pinpoint where you're doing the testing.
3: Yeah, exactly.
0: All right. And have you ever been in an MRI machine?
3: I have actually. Yeah. Did for it freak
0: Did it freak you out a little?
3: Yeah, it was really loud, and it took a long time. It is loud, and it does take a while. But it is
0: actually a really good way to take a look at soft tissues, nerves, and bones, and muscles, and that interaction of all of them. It's a big advancement from what we used to do with x-rays and CAT scans. We're now getting even fancier with MRIs. So anybody who knows physics might know that it's measured in, in Tesla. So, you know, 1.5 T MRIs to a certain amount of imaging quality. Three Tesla MRIs are the latest here in the islands. The Mayo Clinic has a seven Tesla machine, and I don't quite know how fancy Tesla is. I just want one of those cars. but apparently <laughs> when we talk about it for MRI machines it's it's sort of a way that we can look at the ability to distinguish things so that's uh, using that technology appropriately is really going to help us, and if we can figure out a way to take a look at this and help take care of cancer patients better that seems like something definitely worth spending a lot of time on Mm -hmm. all right well thanks for doing that research can you computer digitally artistically model an mri like could you like make the pictures that an mri shows with a computer with your digital art
3: i don't think i could right now but maybe someday yeah maybe someday yeah well i'm just impressed computers are you know sadly enough when i was in college
0: (laughs) i used a typewriter (laughs) and that's going to just date me beyond belief. All right, next we have Zachary. Zachary, tell me what you're doing.
5: Uh, So I'm working with Dr. Hillslin at Wilcox, and we're studying hepatitis B, specifically chronic hepatitis B.
0: Okay, so where'd you go to school, and what are you studying in college?
5: Uh, So I went to Punahou School, and I'm going to be a senior at Loyola University, Chicago, and I'm studying biology and biostatistics.
0: Biology and biostatistics. I'm with you on the biology, Statistics, you keep that. That's great for you. Not so good at that. So tell me a little bit about hepatitis B. What do you know about hep B? How do you get that?
5: So most of the times, hepatitis B, as we've seen in Hawaii, is passed vertically from the mother to the child. And that can be a big problem because hepatitis B is the primary cause of liver cancer, which is the second leading cause of cancer deaths in the world.
0: So, we hear about hepatitis C being something we can treat and we can take care of and we can eliminate, but we haven't figured out the same way to deal with hepatitis B. Is that right?
5: Yes, that is correct. There are two different types of viruses, and there is no cure for hepatitis B yet.
0: Yet. I like that optimistic attitude, <laughs> yet. Because, you know, even though it sounds similar, hepatitis A, which we heard about from some previous exposures that occurred in the islands over the last few years, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, just because they sound similar doesn't mean that they are. So do you know of any, when you're talking about the factors contributing to clearance, so you're talking about people who actually clear the virus, they their body clears it,
5: Yes, we're, and trying, we're
0: trying to figure out why.
5: Yeah. Or we're trying to, looking at it, and we're trying to find to see different things that may account to the clearance, such as when the age they get infected. So a big time is when, if they get infected when they're at a young age, they're less likely to clear it. Whereas if you're older and healthier, you're more likely to clear the virus.
0: If you get infected at a young age, you're not going to clear it. But if you get infected at an older age, so that would not be the vertical transmission. Yes.
5: So if you have a vertical transmission, it is more likely you become a chronic hepatitis B patient.
0: So if you got it from birth, from childbirth, you might have it for a long time, lifelong. Yeah. But if you acquire it from other means, blood and body fluid exposure. So this is something that you could get from... You know, contaminated needles, transfusions in other countries, not the United States, blood exposure, a variety of different ways, Uh, sexual transmission as well. So if you get exposed to hepatitis B when you're an adult, you could actually get better. Correct. All right. Well, I don't want to get exposed, but- (laughs) Day one of med school, we all started getting hepatitis B shots. I think when you guys were young as kids, you probably all got immunized as part of your routine series. And so there is a shot available for that for people who have not been exposed. Take a look at that because it could actually help you from getting exposed. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and you're listening to The Body Show. When we come back, we're going to hear about two more exciting projects and what we're studying right here in the islands. Stay with us.
4: Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Ekahi Ornish Lifestyle Medicine, Ulupono Initiative, and Impact Hub Honolulu Co Working.
0: Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here with the Summer Student Research Scholars from Hawaii Pacific Health, the 2018 cohort. And we're hearing about all different types of research that's going on right now in the islands. And we'd like to hear now from Dane. Dane, what are you? where are you studying? What you doing? And let's talk about your project.
6: So uh, I went to Island Pacific Academy for high school. It's a small private school in Kapolei. And uh, I'm going to be a senior at Crane University this year. And I'm majoring in regular biology and uh, just a small en- minor in English.
0: All right, biology and English. So you can mm-hmm. study it and then use your English skills to write all
6: about it. Hopefully, at least.
0: Yeah. All right, that sounds exciting. What's your favorite part about biology?
6: Um, I'm not too sure quite yet. I, I mean, I think the more observable aspects, like um, as my peer Lauren said, uh, the physiology aspects. Because when you look at molecular bio, you kind of lose track of... You know what exactly is going on because the scale is so small. But when you go in the physiological aspect, um, I think it's a lot easier to relate things to real life. So,
0: okay, well, you're doing a project that has a lot to do with real life. Tell me about that.
6: So, um, I'm working with Dr. Jeff Wong, which is a he's a palliative care physician at Kapiolani and um, we are looking at what decisions do patients and their families, specifically pediatric patients, um, commit to when faced with a life threatening illness. And that, it, our project's focus is on the PULSE document, which is actually an acronym that stands for the Physician's Order for Life-Sustaining Treatment.
0: And what kind of information is on this document?
6: So um, basically, you there are three main sections that you need to fill out as a patient. But if you're a pediatric patient and you're not 18 years old, you need a legal guardian or parent to sign the, the form. And the decisions are basically whether or not um if you want to be resuscitated if you have no pulse um or if you want to not be resuscitated or be given cpr and if you do have a pulse and are but still life-threatening illness is taking over then you can opt for full treatment limited treatment or comfort measures only so those are the main decisions
0: and so what I always found interesting about this form is Hawaii is one of about 17 states, I think, that require the pulsed document to be filled out in addition to a living will or some type of advanced care planning document. And a lot of people don't realize, but when the ambulance is called, if it's called, they need to know, what do we do? And they can't follow a advanced directive or living will mm-hmm. because that just says, if I have a terminal condition, and, well, the ambulance drivers don't know if you're terminal or not. They're, they can't make that choice, like, split second. So the true purpose of a pulse is to let the ambulance know this is what we want done Mm -hmm. if somebody has an extreme condition, and this is do we want them to go to the hospital or not. So I'm very familiar with that document for adults, but it sounds like the pediatric situation, parents would know their child is significantly ill and having a major medical condition and may choose not to go ahead and, and resuscitate someone if they have a serious life-threatening illness like a cancer that has been resistant to treatment or whatever the case may be so you're looking at this particular form and what decisions do patients and families need to make be when they're when they're filling this out it's a it's a huge that's a huge project i mean that's a huge weight on people's shoulders that they have to really think about these Mm -hmm. things yes
6: so um i think another thing to add is that uh we, not only are we looking at the specific decisions that they make on the form, but also what different factors, if it may be demographic, um, like their age, their um, their gender, what um, ethnic background that the patients... I mean, not only the patients, but their parents, that because yeah. the parents have to sign the pulse as well if they're not of age, which is usually the case it is. And also, not only that, but maybe even the gender and the specialty of the provider that sign, both signs the pulse and reviews it with the patient. So... So, so who chooses
0: what and why they choose it?
6: Yep, pretty much. All right.
0: Yep. Well, lots of interesting things that you would learn from that. And uh, I'm glad you're doing that. That's a, that's a very difficult project to talk with people about. Yep. All right. And last but not least, Evan, you are not least at all. You are doing an exciting study. Tell me a little bit about what you're studying in real life and what you're, where you're at and where you're from.
4: Um, So I graduated from Iolani School for High School, and I just recently graduated from University of Southern California, Fight on Trojans. All right. Um, I'm working with Dr. Marty Taba, a family uh, medicine physician, on the Dean Ornish's uh, Reversing Heart Disease program. Its impact on, or its short-term and long-term impact on diabetes, hyperlipidemia, or high cholesterol, and high blood pressure.
0: So this is really looking at some of the data for some of the folks who have gone through the program to see if it's had an impact on those medical conditions. Yes. So the Ornish Lifestyle Program has a couple of different components. Have you had a chance to go see the Ornish locations?
4: Oh, yes. I actually went through a four-hour session that they did. So they have four components. They have the nutrition component. They have the exercise component, the group support component, and the stress management component.
0: And so those four components, if you are part of the program, it's about nine weeks. You go several times a week. You have this cohort of people that you go through this with. And previously, and actually on the mainland right now, it's considered intensive cardiac rehab. So if you have a heart attack or a cardiac event, this is a program that you may be referred to. But Hawaii is unique because Hawaii has looked at the... HMSA, or the Blue Cross Blue Shield version here, uh, HMSA, has looked at coverage for this for risk factors. And they're looking at people who have high blood pressure, diabetes, high cholesterol, and can they actually see some improvement in those conditions, which can be extrapolated to reducing the overall risks of heart attacks and other cardiovascular illnesses and strokes and other things that happen. So when you look at this program and you look at the diet, do you think you could do it?
4: Oh, I actually had to do it for a week.
0: Really? Yeah. How did that go?
4: It was hard.
0: Hard but doable?
4: Yeah, it's doable. Uh, The hardest part was probably uh, taking out all of the fats, the added fats and the oils in the diet. Uh, Going vegetarian is quite tough, I think, for people in Hawaii because we like our salty meats. But, um, But I thought the oils was the harder part, actually.
0: Okay. And did all your friends go, look at what we're eating. Hey, Evan, see we have pizza. You can't have it. They were all nice to you here. They didn't like torture you.
4: Oh, no, they were, they were very nice to me. You should
0: have made them do it with you. You should have said, group support, man. I'm studying the Ornish program. Group support. You guys will have to do it. But I guess they've already gotten out of that because the week you did it is over, yeah? Yeah. So what do you think? Do you think it's going to have an impact on those other medical conditions?
4: Well, from the preliminary data that I looked at so far, it looks like for the first three months uh, while they're in the program, it's been pretty promising. Uh, I'm still uh, evaluating the one-year and two-year uh, Results, but we'll see.
0: Yeah, I think that's going to be really important information because part of what we're trying to look at is if this is a really effective program on a longitudinal basis for people with these risk factors for having serious medical illnesses, then we should all try and figure out a way to provide this for folks. However, that way we can go ahead and make sure that if they do need this type of care, we actually get it for them. So fantastic. I think it's exciting. Now, when you looked at some of the stress reduction, That actually, you felt like you could do that too? Is it, you know, stress reduction? Is it just yoga? Is it learning meditation? What sort of skills did they learn from that?
4: Um, Well, when I went to the stress management session, they were doing yoga, but there are other components such as different types of breathing, like doing um, breathing from your stomach, or like your diaphragm. Abdominal breathing, right,
0: right. Not Um, shallow breathing, sort of deep breathing. So that was one of the stress reduction elements. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're going to need that if you have to eliminate all the fats and meats from your diet. You need to reduce your stress because you can't just go eat a pizza. Yeah.
4: yeah. But um, it, uh, but the yoga that they're doing, like anyone can do it. It's more like kind of stretches uh, rather than the kind of hardcore power yoga that you see all those people doing. So it's very manageable.
0: So if you're scared of doing it because you're afraid you can't bend your body that way, they accommodate you with your ability to body bend. All right. Well, and I think the data that you're coming up with is going to be really ideal for us to take a look at from the health perspective because that's the one – Thing that if we can tell patients, hey, if you go through this nine weeks and you keep going at three months and you keep going at a year or two years, this is how much you can really see an improvement. That kind of information is often something we don't have yet. So it's hard to share with folks, but I'm happy that you're studying it. and I'm looking forward to hearing more about the final data, which I think will be forthcoming in addition to taking a look at it for the next few years. All right, well, that is the end of our summer student research show. If you'd like to hear the show again, you can click on our podcast at hawaiipublicradio.org or in the HPR app. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week right here on The Body Show. See you then.